going everybody this is chris welcome to episode 187 of x lapsed where uh i've been smacked in the face with allergies so um apologies if i sound a little bit raspier than usual today but uh we got a lot to talk about so let's hop right on in here this is going to be marauders number 19 which had a june 2021 cover date stories called fire and ice and um hmm yeah, not, not much point to... I mean, there is a point to that title, but uh, that doesn't seem like the main point of this issue, but we'll get there. Written by Jerry Duggan with art by Stefano Caselli. Colors Edgar Delgado. Led is VC's Ariana Mar. Designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Bisa white Sapolsky. Cover price $3.99. And this one went on sale April 7 of 2021. Now this one opens with one of those uh, mostly blank quote pages that we love so much. This one comes from a guy named Patch. Some dude called Patch. I wonder who that could be. Huh. Anyway, uh, well, what he talks about is... Um, I'm not sure if you've ever heard this before. Stop me if you've heard this one. Uh, Madripoor is a lawless place. You know, it's a very, very lawless place. I'm not sure if you were aware of that. They, they hardly ever mention it. From here, we go to straight to our double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred, and our characters today will include, but not be limited to, Callisto, Iceman, Bishop, Call Me Kate, Pyro, and Mask. And we open with the Reavers, causing all sorts, and this is the new Reavers, of course, causing all sorts of havoc around Lowtown, which is pretty much right where we left things off last issue. It's worth noting here that the narration refers to them as being post-human. And I gotta ask, is that uh, stretching the definition, or are we just calling any sort of enhanced human post-human now? I suppose it stands to reason, right? Um, I'm not sure, though. I don't know if this is post-human in the Hickman sense, or post-human in just the enhanced human sense. I don't know. Well, Omenes Varendi, our friends there, they're watching Lowtown burn from their balcony, and uh, also via spyglass, they're looking out to the bay where the marauder is sitting, but is unable to actually, you know, do anything to help. Now, if you recall, uh, last issue, the uh, United Nations instructed the Marauders to stay off Madripoor uh, due to the uh, big brouhaha at the Princess Bar. And so the Marauder, they're surrounded by a pair of large naval ships looking to enforce the UN ruling. The Hellfire Tot's nanny, Chen Whatserface, comments that uh, should the Marauders interfere, Krakoa would lose its recognition from the UN, which... I'm not sure that's how it works. Um, doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense to me, but I ain't no statesman, so what do I know? Now, on board the Marauder, we got Call Me Kate and the crew, and they're trying to brainstorm ways in which they might aid the Lotownians. Callisto initially seems a bit hesitant to whatever it is that Kitty's planning, but she comes around pretty quick. She leaves the ship via a gateway, and we'll catch up with her in just a little bit. On the boat, we figure out why this issue is called Fire and Ice. Pyro and Iceman are going to use their powers in tandem in order to cause a distraction. A distraction, I might mention, that we, the readers, don't actually get to see in this issue. But from what we hear, it's a, uh, something really distracting, <laughs> I guess. Now, Bobby suggests that uh, they, he and Pyro, call themselves The Two, because there, well, there's already a five, and he says if they were to call themselves Fire and Ice, like this issue is called, nobody would take them seriously. I'm not sure that the two is all that much better. Um, Fire and Ice kind of rolls off the tongue. Maybe you just go with the, you know, you go with the easy one, right? Anyway, to enact her half of the plan, Kitty prepares to go overboard. 
She hands over her Star of David necklace, and in the close-up we can see uh, her hands. They still have that dumb Kill Shaw tattoo on the knucks. Pyro hands her a Krakoa bulb, like a little plant thing, and uh, ordered a plant when she reaches her destination, wherever that may be. So, Kitty dives, and the two create some crazy-ass flaming ice sculpture. And it works like a charm. Uh, The two naval ships are so distracted by the sculpture, which, again, we don't actually get to see, that they didn't realize that Kitty dropped into the drink here. And um, I'm open to suggestions as to what this um, sculpture might be. Um, The more vulgar, the better, I would imagine, right? Because, I mean, how else are you going to distract all these people? It's got to be something phallic. Something bosomy? I I don't know (laughs) I'm figuring it's probably something a little bit uh, I mean, that's the only reason why we couldn't have seen it, right? Had to be something a little lascivious uh, If that's the right term for it here Um, So, we go back to Kitty here And she swims through a sewage pipe on the edge of Madripoor And through into the sewers When she pulls herself out of the sewage She vomits a lot Topside on the island, we see the Fisher family, who nursed Lockheed back to health, running away from the Reavers. Kitty plants the Krakoan bulb in the sewer while thinking about the Mora McTaggart hospital that they just erected to help the people of Lowtown. From here, we shift scenes to uh, Callisto, who is in Rio Verde, Arizona, where first thing she does is complain about the Arizona sun. And yeah, it, it sucks. <laughs> We're already in the triple digits Fahrenheit out here, and it's... uh. Not the greatest. Um, Anyway, she's here to pick up a crew of Morlocks to enact her half of this plan, this mission. And we've got a motley five some of Underworlders here, so how about we meet them? We don't get a roll call page, but uh, I think we can make do. We've got Mask, of course, and uh, we already know what he's doing right now. He's played a decent-sized role last issue in working at uh, McTaggart General. We got Marrow, another familiar face and a recent loser in the X-Men election. We got Hump and Brute, a pair of Liefeldian relics from the latter issues of the original New Mutants, and they look exactly how they sound. And we got Bliss. Bliss. Hmm. Now this one looks a lot like uh, X-Factor-era Jean Grey, and I wonder what that's all about. Uh, She's got this disgusting extending tongue with a head on the end of it. It's very, very gross. Anyway, Callisto is here to talk this crew into heading into Madripoor and fighting off the Reavers. You know, since they've chosen not to live on Krakoa, and they're also not in Marauders, it's kind of a loophole we can play with around the UN edict to stay out of the place, right? Now, Mask ain't feeling it. Until Callisto informs him that McTaggart General will probably be burned to the ground during the fracas if they don't. And so, through the gateway they go. And they arrive in the Madriporian sewer where Kitty planted the connecting bulb. Mask isn't wildly impressed that they're going to be emerging from the sewers, you know, like they have for their entire existence to this point. Uh, Kitty, it might be worth mentioning, is still power puking. Now, topside, the Fisher family are still on the run, when suddenly Guy Gardner Warrior shows up and blasts the Fisher father in the chest. Now, before he can kill the Fisher daughter, however, Mask clocks him on the back of the head with his little club gimmick. From here, we get a few pages of the Morlocks absolutely decimating the all-new Reavers. Which, I mean, if the Morlocks can beat them, surely, like, the one, the, the, the average one-legged Lotownian could probably beat them, right? Because this, uh, this is a motley crew here. Anyway, either Hump or Brute asks if they're allowed to kill these new Reavers, wondering if they are human. He doesn't wait for an answer, though, and he just starts killing. I mean, do I even need to bring this up again? Uh, The Krakoan law vacillates between kill no man and kill no human, so maybe we should just, like, I don't know, err on the side of caution and just not kill anything. I don't know. Maybe we could just say that the Morlocks were deputized as members of X-Force for this scene. But also, I mean, I don't want to point out inconsistencies, especially if they're just inconsistencies that I'm imagining. But um, these Morlocks don't live on Krakoa, so I don't know that they necessarily have to uh, abide by Krakoan law. So why even ask the question in the first place? I mean, that's kind of the whole reason they're here, right? That they live in Rio Verde. They don't live on Krakoa. They're not part of the mutant nation. I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking too much. 
anyway, this is what it, this comes down to is basically just yet another mention of the top secret Krakoan Phantom Zone where Sabretooth is being kept. And I really thought that this was like a, a Quiet Council only sort of thing. This is like need to know information and only the Quiet Council needs to know it. So how does everybody seem to know? And nobody seems all that interested in doing anything about it? I don't know. So let's return to the Marauder, where Call Me Kate is swimming back from the cloudy Madriporian turlet water here. Um, now, on, on board, Pyro offers her a Pyrogarita, because uh, of course he does. Um, I gotta say, I probably would have went with a Pyrotini, because, I mean, that's just easier to say, but that's just me. Iceman's like, hey, Kitty, ask me where Bishop went. And so she goes, hey, Bobby, where did Bishop went? <laughs> and that takes us to our next scene shift. And we're in Max von Frankenstein's lab. Now, Bishop is there, and he holds a gun to Max's head and tells him to stop turning men into monsters. To which Max calmly and casually responds, uh, he suggests that the mutants stop turning men into hamburger meat. Well, touche. Bishop informs Max that he is taking his lab away from him, and Max, he ain't all that worried. He ain't sweating this at all. He's uh, never going to stop doing what he does. He says, you're just going to slow me down a little bit. You ain't going to stop me. Then... Bishop blows the place up. Back on the streets, the Morlocks continue to make fools out of the new Reavers. Mask discovers that Kalisto lied to him when Guy Gardner Warrior tells him that the Reavers were informed to destroy everything in Lowtown except McTaggart General. Wonk, wonk, wonk. We wrap up our issue back at the Princess Bar after the dust settles. Marrow offers the Fisher daughter a job running the place, which, you know, more than makes up for her having her father murdered right in front of her like six minutes ago. Then a random Lowtownian bar patron suggests they change the name of the area from Lowtown to Mutytown. I thought Mutie was a slur. Eh, way to be progressive, random Lowtownian bar patron. Uh, from here, we wrap with an info page, and it's more Hellfire Gala lead-up coming to us from the X-Desk. And I think I said this last episode, the more we hear about the Hellfire Gala, the less I actually want to read it. And uh, that's not a good place to be, but uh, we will take it as it comes. Uh, that is the end of this issue. Next episode, we're going to be wrapping up our Runaways three-parter, our little uh, off-the-beaten-path trek in Griffith Park, so uh, look forward to that. But for now, let's talk about Marauders. Now, what is that? Uh, what's that Michael Jackson song they play like incessantly around Halloween? Is it called Filler? Filler Night? Is that what it is? Because uh, yeah, this feels kind of fillery here. Um, and I mean, it's hard to hold it against the book. It's hard to hold it against any of these books, really. But um. I feel like this season, um, we got this very, very small window in order to um, tell stories. We had the X of Swords end, right? And um, they mentioned the Hellfire Gala, and I was assuming right off the bat that the gala was going to be in the fall. You know, I figured it'd be like almost exactly a year after X of Swords just to give these, uh, give these titles a little bit of room to breathe. But no, that's not happening at all. So instead of giving the books like adequate paginal real estate to build stories, right, lay foundation, tell, actually do something here, we're getting these short subjects, right? We're getting like these little two-parters. And I mean, I've complained about the six-parter a lot, or the five-parter, the new uh, the new version of the six-parter, but um. And I would beg for one-offs or two-offs or whatever, but here it just feels like we're filling pages because we got to get to the next event. And I'm projecting a lot of that. I, I will concede that. But these past two issues of Marauders felt kind of like a uh, like a one-two punch, but not in the good way. It was like we spent all last issue building up the the threat, building up the the challenge. Right? We gotta. We get the Marauders where they're not allowed on uh, Madripoor anymore. And then right here, we figure out the way around it. Feels like, you know, we, we stacked up the pins and we knocked them down. And that's really, that's really all we did here. Now, the way they did it was clever, right? Bringing in the Morlocks from Rio Verde. But by that same token, it was also quite inconsistent. Um, like I mentioned during the synopsis here, they were brought in simply because they weren't Marauders and they're not 
Krakoan. They're not living on Krakoa. And yet when they show up, they're like abiding by Krakoan law or fearing repercussions for not abiding by Krakoan law. So that makes you ask the question, does it matter if you live on Krakoa or not? If you're a mutant, do you just have this law over your head? Um, And I mean, of course, on planet Earth, our own planet Earth, you know, murder is is a crime. But um, this is a world where mutants are not going to um, answer to man's laws. They're not going to answer to man's courts, right? They're not going to go on trial in man's world. That was kind of one of the things they laid out during Hoxpox. So does that mean that every mutant, whether they're living on Krakoa or not, has to make more mutants, not kill humans and or men, um, and uh, respect Krakoan land? I, the sacred Krakoan land. I, I really I really don't know. It's it's one of those things that I'm probably I'm probably overthinking it. And let's talk about the uh, the threat here, the new Reavers. Um, they're labeled in the narration as post-human, and yet the Morlocks are able to just wipe them out with very little effort. And these Morlocks that we had are... they're geeks, right? I mean, Mask took Guy Gardner Warrior out with a little clock to the head with his little cane. I feel like labeling these new Reavers as post-human really uh, lowers the stock of post-humans overall. It's like, this is the big threat? Maybe not. Um, now speaking of threats here, we really need to uh, do something with Omenes Verandi. We gotta, like, you know, spit or get off the pot, right? We gotta do something here. They've been the threat for two years now? And, I mean, this is something that isn't exclusive to Marauders, right? In all the books here, our threats are just lingering. And they're not getting any stronger. They're not getting any scarier. They're not getting any more dangerous. They're not getting any more threatening. They're just there, lingering, waiting for the story to happen. Uh, In this book, we have Omenes Verandi. In X-Force, we have Zeno. In Excalibur, we got Otherworld and uh, the Coven Akaba. It's (laughs) like... We gotta do something. We gotta move on. It feels like we're just treading water here, and um, these threats are becoming quite long in the tooth. And the longer that they linger, because I mean, I don't have any doubt that a lot of these people are going to show up at the gala because I think the gala is one of the main selling points of the gala is that. There's going to be friends and enemies, humans and mutants, cats and dogs cohabitating at this thing, right? It's quite the exclusive party. So I'm sure we're going to have um, Cade Kilgore. He'll probably be there. The the butterfly guy from uh, the, the the Court of Owls over in X-Force will be there. What's-her-face from the X-Desk will be there. It's, it's you know, we're treading water. And that's uh, unfortunate when we're expected to shell out 4 to $5 per issue and... All we're doing, it's like, instead of it being a monthly event, these comics, um, not that I want everything to be a monthly event, but I want I want these stories to build. I want these stories to, you know, happen, <laughs> finally happen. It's starting to feel, and this might just be an X-lapsed problem, and the way that I'm covering these books, it feels like, a, like I'm watching Days of Our Lives here, a, a daily soap opera where... Nothing really happens. You watch you watch a soap opera, and Monday through Thursday, nothing happens. Then on Friday, the last five minutes of the show is what really gets you invested. It's like, okay, something's happening, something's happening, and then it's the cliffhanger. And then you have the weekend, and you have to like sit with it over the weekend. Then Monday, you see the cliffhanger again, and then for the next four days, nothing happens. And that kind of feels like how these books are going in the interim here between uh, the Exoswords and uh, the Hellfire Gala. Now, I do understand the realities of comics publishing here and the fact that uh, we have to build to the event. Because the event is... I, I feel like, and again, this is me projecting, we don't have sales figures because Comicron and Diamond, they aren't updating them past last October for some reason. But um, I don't have sales figures. But the way I look at it is that these event books are the ones paying for the rest of the books. So these issues that we're looking at right now are kind of the loss leaders, right? They're the ones that uh, they're not going to sell as well. I mean, that's just 
That's just the nature of the business. They're not going to sell as well. They're not going to be as widely read. And honestly, if anything worth seeing is going to happen in any of these books, Marvel themselves will spoil it a month and a half before it comes out. So the books that we don't get spoiled are the ones that it's like, yeah, this is just, you know, Tuesday, days of our lives. It's nothing's happening. But uh, don't really have much to say about this issue, If uh, <laughs> in case that wasn't entirely clear. Um, I didn't hate it. Um, I, you know, I enjoyed it for what it was. Uh, I think my main takeaway is Bishop blowing up the lab because I looked at this as um, not, not Marauder's business. We know from past info pages that Bishop is reporting a lot of this stuff back to Hank McCoy. And Hank McCoy, he's X-Force, X-Force has immunity, you know, they don't have to answer to anybody really Of course, they'd have to answer to the United Nations But uh, in what he did there, I don't see that as him acting in the interests of the Marauders here I, I see that as him doing something at the behest of the Beast with a, with a result that he can report back Again, I might be completely out to lunch on that one, but that's just what I got from it. Really, the only thing that I see resonating um, going forward here. I mean, we might get the the Fisher daughter working at the Princess Bar for what that's worth. But um, yeah, I think that's all I got to say about this issue. Um, if you agree or disagree, I would love to hear from you. Uh, speaking of which, let's hop into the mailbag here. We're gonna start with Damien, who's talking about Excalibur number seventeen. He says, I enjoyed this issue of Excalibur quite a bit more than usual. I like the idea of characters in a cross-time world creating a guidebook for when their alternate counterparts eventually arrive. It's logical within the world of Queen Elizabeth. I also thought that Howard and Toad did a good job of delineating the differences and similarities between the two Betsys and their histories. What I couldn't understand was our Betsy's motivation for questioning an alternate version of Quinan. What is she going to discover that is helpful? Are we meant to assume that Betsy wants to talk with Quinan but feels too guilty to approach the one that she replaced? I still don't quite see the purpose from the character's point of view, but it was a great way to illustrate the difference between the Earths. And yeah, that's one of the things that really stuck out to me as well. Um, and in the discussion, like, if I'm remembering right, Quinan's like, okay, you got three questions, right? She's like, you can ask me three questions and I'll tell you three answers. And like... The questions were like the dumbest thing ever. It's like, where's my brother? It's like, well, this is an alternate Earth. What does it matter? You know, <laughs> it really doesn't. Unless unless she wants to make sure that her brother is okay in every Earth. And I mean, if she was that interested, wouldn't Warren Worthington know? Like the Warren Worthington of that Earth? Wouldn't he know what happened to Brian? I just... Uh... I don't know, and her uh, talking about like whether or not Quanan's always been in her own body, it just seemed like yet another reminder. We don't need this reminder anymore, do we? I mean, I joke about it every time we talk about it. It's like, oh, did you know <laughs> that Betsy once occupied Quanan's body? But honestly, uh, and without irony, uh, we don't need that reminder. But they, I, I don't know if they think we're stupid. I don't know if this is the old uh, every issue could be someone's first, which, I mean, it's of course it's not, because, I mean, these, these books would be written totally different if that were the case, but I, I'm i just tired of the reminder. <laughs> really, really am. Uh, Damien continues, One of my favorite elements of this story was Rogue's inability to keep the whole England, Great Britain, UK thing straight. Amen to that, because, uh, yeah, <laughs> I stumble over that. Every single time. Damien continues, It felt genuine and it made me smile. I just hope there's something coming to re rehabilitate Richter. He's really boring now. It's all druids and apocalypse. Could we transfer him to X-Factor so he can go to Mojo World and then team up with Shatterstar again? I'm sure that would take the, his mind off the druids. And yeah, um, I mean, it's funny. It's like they took... They took everything unique away from Richter, including his, including the way he looked, you know? Um, he's just a dude with brown hair. Uh, he, could, he could blend into any group scene. He doesn't stand out. Um, and, like you said, he's very, very boring now. It's all about the grimoire. It's all about apocalypse. It ha it's, 
he's lost everything that made him unique. And I mean, he wasn't a terribly, uh, you know, exciting character beforehand, but at least he had some things going for him here. And here it's just like, it's like, who's that normal dude on Excalibur? Oh, okay, it's Richter. He doesn't have a unique look. He doesn't have a unique anything. He's just that guy. (laughs) They might as well not even draw a face on his head. He's just a blank slate. Uh, Damien wraps up with, Anyway, until the druids come after me for calling them boring, make my next laughs. And uh, from what I know about England slash Great Britain slash the UK is that druids do live on every corner, so you have to be careful if you're going to refer to them as boring because uh, they might come after you. That's that's what I know about about uh, about England slash Great Britain slash UK. You've got wizards, you got dragons, <laughs> and you've got druids, and you have a uh, you have those phone booths that travel through uh, time. I think right is that the thing? But uh, thank you so much for writing in about Excalibur. We got plenty more coming from Damien over the next several episodes, and I'm really looking forward to it. Next up, Evan talking about Hellions number nine. He says, so, shocker, Hellions was good. Well, yes, of course it was. Evan continues, I don't know if I was reading more into it than was there, but it seems like Wells is setting up a love or lust triangle with Wildchild, Quinan, and Greycrow. It has the added awkwardness bonus that Greycrow is kind of like Wildchild's mentor at this point. If you had told me a year ago someone would be, would be writing any kind of subplot featuring those three characters, I would have politely nodded and then tried to turn the conversation towards Squirrel Girl. But here I am, interested in Psylocke's former host. Did you know Brian Braddock's beautiful British <laughs> sister, Betsy, once occupied Quinan's body? I did not know that. <laughs> oh, that caught me off guard. Oh, boy. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um... <clears throat> So he's interested in Psylocke's former host, Sabretooth Jr., and a mass murderer with a politically correct uh, code name who seems to genuinely care for his teammates past and present. You're right. You're right. I would have never thought that this would have been something I'd be interested in. I would have... Um, I mean, because these three characters, uh, who cares, <laughs> right? I mean, I think that... Um, Grey Crow had a little bit of cachet. He would come up in a lot of people's, you know, favorite underrated character uh, list. And because uh, he does have a cool look, he's got a cool gimmick. Uh, Wild Child, I don't think, would ever come up in that conversation. And um, Quanon, probably not either. But here we are. And I don't think you're reading anything into it. I think this is absolutely there here. Uh, since Wild Child's come back, he's got this. Uh, He's got a bit of a raging libido, right? He wants to uh, let his alpha out, and he definitely has the hot pants for Psylocke. And we have this weird mutual admiration and respect, you know, budding between Quanon and John here. So I definitely think that they're headed that way, and I hope they are, because it, uh, it is interesting here. And, um, you know, Wild Child, this might be the most interesting he's ever been in this guise, right? So it will be interesting to see if um, his resurrection has made him more mature or if if maybe it made him a little bit more bestial, right? Um, If he catches, you know, Quanon and uh, Grey Crow making out, uh, I wonder what might happen there. That's very interesting. Now Evan continues, I don't know much about Orphan Maker, but my impression was that he's an adult with a childlike mind and a penchant for violence. I really don't know myself. I really don't know. Um, we might have to take a look at Orphan Maker sometime soon to try to try to flesh him out. He might be a candidate for uh, fake-ass comics history sometime down the line. Maybe maybe the next time we talk about the Hellions, we'll talk about the life and times of Orphan Maker because it'll it'll give me an excuse to do a little bit of research, and uh, I think it could be some fun discussions and fun discoveries. Evan continues. I don't know that it's a good idea for you to talk about sales figures on Hellions Day. I know. <laughs> I'm already surprised the series is reaching double digits, and I keep worrying that it'll be taken from us too soon. I hope I'm wrong, and I hope we see Zeb Wells take a stab, pun intended, at the Crucible, since he seems to ask the hard questions better than any other writer in the X-Stable right now. Oh boy, yeah, absolutely. Could you imagine Zeb Wells spending an issue talking about the Crucible? I mean, that's... I, I you know... Charge ten bucks for it. I'm buying it. <laughs> you know, uh, 
he is, um, he, like you said here, he asks all these tough questions here. Um, where, where, you know, empath, the many deaths of empath. You have Orphan Maker, you know, his uh, childlike mind asking, like, well, is this really him or is this not him? And, uh, well, no, it just looks like him, but we're going to treat him like him anyway. All these weird, weird questions that need to be asked and just aren't, except in this book. So I do hope that, uh, man, I would love to see it. I would absolutely love to see it. Now, Evan continues, or he wraps up with. So until Call Me Kate starts dating Orphan Maker, because he's one of the only Marvel characters named Peter, sorry, Pete, who with whom she hasn't locked lips. <laughs> Make mine ex-lapsed. And yeah, isn't that crazy? Um <laughs> she's she's had what, four I mean, three boyfriends, three like main boyfriends in the main Marvel universe, and she's had one in the Ultimate Universe, right? Now, for the main Marvel Universe, the 616, of course, Colossus, Peter Rasputin, uh, Pete Wisdom, uh, over an Excalibur, and Peter Quill, Star-Lord, uh, in recent years, right? Then over in the Ultimate Universe, she was dating Peter Parker, Spider-Man. So, <laughs> she might have a, uh, I don't want to say Peter fetish, because that, uh, that's a lot less innocent than, uh, than it ought to be, but... Uh, yeah, that's a very interesting thing here. I wonder if uh, if she'll start sniffing around Orphan Maker anytime soon. I, I guess we can uh, we can we can only hope, right? <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for writing in about uh, boy the flagship book of this line, Hellions Heaven, and uh, your you know your mouth to God's ears here. Hopefully, it doesn't get taken from us anytime soon. Next up, we got Andrew Franklin talking about X Factor number eight. He says, I've really enjoyed parts of the last few issues of X-Factor, but I have to admit that the Morrigan plot has left me kind of cold. I enjoyed the mystery of what exactly was going on with Siren in issue number six, but since I never read the story that this is continuing from, the reveal of Siren's possession didn't really land for me. Not really the creative team's fault, but unfortunately it has colored my opinion of the last few issues. And I tell you, I did read that story over in uh, the Peter David X-Factor, and I totally forgot about it. I forgot about the Morgan, and um, when the Morgan did show up here, I, it made sense, and I liked it because it played with lore, and that's something that not every book does. X-Factor, you know, it's so weird when we talk about X-Factor, and we go back to the early issues that I absolutely just slogged through, here we are, and it's one of the more traditional books in the line. It feels like... It could be, I mean, of course, with uh, modern things amended to be a little bit more uh, in the gestalt, this could be an 80s comic, right? There's a lot of the old Claremontian, not so much tropes, but uh, technique. You know, we have subplots that unfortunately, I mean, who knows if we're going to get to all of them because of, because this book is going away from us, but um, also in playing with uh, established X-Men, X-Book, X-Universe lore. And that's, uh, I love it. I love that they're doing that. Uh, Andrew continues. I didn't really like the strange tease ending of issue number seven, where we see in a jump cut that most of the team is already dead. In hindsight, this might have been the first showing of the story rushing that also seems to happen in issue number eight. Like in Cable, it makes sense now that we know that the title's canceled, but it does unfortunately affect the quality of the story for me. The fight with the Morrigan is wrapped up very quickly, and I suspect that the issue might have taken up two issues if Leia Williams didn't have to wrap things up in a few issue, in the few issues that she has left. At the end of the issue, I couldn't help but think, oh, that was pretty easy. A more charitable interpretation could be that the team is very capable and work, well, work, work together very well, which I do think is true, but that just highlights how disappointing it is that X-Factor is being cancelled. And I totally agree. I totally agree there. Um, the jump cut felt weird. It felt like, uh, you know, we were kind of re, uh, refiguring the story to make things fit. Uh, also, like you mentioned here, the fight, it kind of just came and went, didn't it? Uh, the, what was it? Uh, Rachel and Polaris just kind of used the Care Bear stare and uh, beat the Morgan. But in the lead-up to that, uh, all the zombified... Uh, reanimated corpses of X-Factor were haunting the Boneyard, right? Which I think they definitely left money on the table there because that, I mean, that that just could have brought up so many of those questions that we're asking here. You have Dakin Dakin facing off against Dakin Dakin, 
which one's the real one, right? Um, what makes a reanimated corpse any different from a resurrectee? There are so many questions that we can ask there. But unfortunately, like you said here, um, the signs of truncation are definitely there, unfortunately. I know Leah Williams said that she got the word that the book was being canceled while she was writing issue 9. But it does kind of feel like maybe it was issue 8. Because this was this was a very, very conveniently told story. And... Um, Definitely had the potential to be uh, to be quite a bit more than what it was here. Andrew continues, As much as the Morrigan plot hasn't excited me, all the other stuff has been a pleasure to read. I would really like to know what's going on with Prodigy, and I've enjoyed how Leah Williams has sprinkled that mystery through the last few issues. I like how she's been focusing on iBoy and exploring how useful and powerful his abilities can be. Leah Williams is really good at giving her characters humanity, and I've really grown to like iBoy's enthusiastic positivity. Also, great use of the info pages this issue, both in examining Prodigy's manipulated photo, which really serves to enhance that mystery, and to Northstar's no-email exchange. It's a funny and is good character work for John Paul. It's going to be a shame if these characters aren't used after this series ends. And yeah, I mean, you know me. I am not a booster of these info pages. I will complain about them if you give me if you give me five seconds. I will fit a complaint about an info page in, but here it works. It really, really does. It actually adds to the story and doesn't replace story. You know that's what these things need to be. They need to be flavor. They don't need to be the meal. Where you look at a Hickman book and the info pages are, you know, you have your meat and instead of a vegetable, you have an info page, right? Here we have a plate full of food. We got a balanced meal plus info pages on the side. Info pages that actually, the info page is salt and pepper, right? And we can actually sprinkle that on our food and add flavor to it. And I mean, I, I probably ran that analogy <laughs> a few sentences too far, but hopefully you get my meaning. And it's, I mean, it's just a damn, damn shame that this book is going away because we do have the prodigy mystery. How are we going to wrap that up so quick? Right? The eye boy thing. And I, the eye boy thing was one of my main takeaways for that issue. You have professor X starting to sniff around, right? It's like, well, I, uh, you know, John Paul, I want you to, I want you to tell me anytime eye boy does something. And he's like, don't trust you. Nope. <laughs> Not going to do it. And we were able to theorize from that one-word email, because it does totally fit into John Ball's character, because he can be a jerk, right? But we also know that he doesn't trust the Quiet Council as far as he can throw them. So we can read into that, we can theorize, and we can wonder, like, what is it that iBoy can see? Can he see into time? Can he see the no place? So many questions, and it's just a damn shame that I don't know that they're going to be answered And by Leah Williams, who has set the table so well. I really don't know. And I hope that these story threads, like you said here, I hope these characters and these story bits don't just get thrown to the wayside. Again, it's just just a damn shame. This is one of the very few books out there that has a reason to, to exist. It actually is different than some of the other books out there. Anyway, Andrew wraps up with, So until we can be sure the Trial of Magneto doesn't have the pretentious music piece story titles, make mine X-Labs. Yes, Leah Williams will be writing the Trial of Magneto, which I was hoping... You know, I had heard uh, secondhand about the cancellation of X-Factor, and um, I was hopeful that maybe uh, the people who were telling me about it were just mistaken, you know? And it's like, no, 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 it's just going on break. You know, maybe maybe X Factor is ending with issue ten, so then we can get the I don't know how many issues of Trial of Magneto is. I'm assuming four or five. So like, we'll get X Factor ten, then we'll get the Trial of Magneto one through four or five, and then X Factor eleven will come out. You know, this is just going to replace X Factor in the schedule for now because it's Leo Williams doing it. X Factor is supposedly going to be part of it. I don't know. I, I don't think that's going to be the case, unfortunately. Anytime I think about one of these books getting canceled, I'm reminded of um, the earliest uh, Jonathan Hickman stuff, where I don't remember where I read it or where I heard it, but I think that the original plan was going to be that the six launch titles, right, they were going to go 10 to 12 issues, get canceled, 
and then we get all new number ones that might have repeat titles in there or that might explore different titles. But the sales were unexpectedly high for these early issues of the Dawn of X books, so they decided to keep it going. And then COVID happened, which pushed X of Swords back, uh, you know, exponentially, right? It's several months. God, that got pushed back. And it probably wasn't the smartest time to cancel and launch new books while... People aren't sure if their shops are going to be open. They aren't sure if these books are going to come out. They aren't sure if the the mail is going to work. Um, So I think a lot of things contributed to the books that we have now getting into the 20s, right? And now I think we might start to see the original Hickman plan, if it's true, of course, where we're going to have books make it to issue 10 or issue 12 or issue 15 and then wiped off the board and something else happens here, which... Much as I hate to say it, does not bode well for our Hellions. It really, really doesn't. But uh, thank you so much for writing in, Andrew. And I got both of your messages, so uh, we have more from Andrew in the coming episodes. So thank you so, so much. Now, before we go, we have two of our little side segments to get through here. We have a very, very short news update here. So um, got a question for you. Who is Somnus? Hmm, who is Somnus? Now, for those unaware, we will, uh, I would say meet, but I think we already met him. Uh, we're going to meet this character in Marvel's Voices Pride, the, uh, the one shot coming out, I believe, in June. So we will probably be discussing it in uh, the first weeks of July. And uh, the picture's been going around uh, the internet. Uh, it's a character um, with a stylized X uniform and also uh, something that kind of looks like the Nightmask hoodoo from uh, the new uh, universe, which makes me think that this is probably the character from the Danny Moonstar story in Marvel Voices, uh, Indigenous Voices. Now that episode is in the archives if anybody would like to check out the Indigenous Voices uh, conversation there, but um, if you're not familiar with that story, uh, Danny Moonstar and uh, Rain were called to a small town here in Arizona, where uh, I believe it was Arizona, where a young boy exhibited his uh, mutant powers and uh, was getting hunted down by the sheriff and his posse. I can't say for sure that it's the same character, but um, since they had that same sort of night mask um, little uh, iconography, I don't know, but uh, since it resembled the night mask thing, it's making me put two and two together, and I, you know, I might, I might add up to five when I do so, so, I don't know, I, I just think it's the same, uh, the same character, and, uh, looking forward to, uh, meeting him in his, uh, superhero togs sometime during this summer, maybe he will, uh, maybe he'll join one of our teams, you never know. Now, before we cut on out of here, let's do a little bit of fake-ass comics history. Now we're going to be talking uh, about a character that I don't know that very many people know a whole heck of a lot about. I know that I didn't before engaging in this research. And this research, it's worth mentioning, was a hybrid research here. It was a lot of fun to do. I used the Marvel Wiki to um, procure the uh, issue numbers and which books this character appeared in. And then I went to my long boxes and I dug them all out. Uh, It was only like uh, a dozen or so issues from... Three or four different boxes, but uh, no big deal Because I had a fun time doing it I was able to flip through some old books, some newer books And uh, just uh, do uh, do some old-fashioned research here That's something that always tickles me Because I don't often get the opportunity to do it But I think in our little F.A. Comics History segment here I might get, I might get uh, the opportunity to flex that muscle a little bit more So today we're going to learn about Bliss Bliss, who is that? Of course, it's the character we saw here today One of Mask's Morlocks The one with the nasty, disgusting tongue And uh, she was also in the X-Factor Jean Grey uniform And we're going to talk a little bit about that as we go through Now, Bliss's first appearance was in Uncanny X-Men issue 261 That had a May 1990 cover date That issue was by Chris Claremont and Mark Silvestri Now, uh, if you don't have the issue in front of you Which you probably don't This is the Hard Case and the Harriers issue If you remember that, I remember thinking that these characters were going to be huge because they were prominently named on the cover of an issue of Uncanny X-Men that was probably pinned to a wall with a $10 price tag on it the first time I saw it. And I wonder if Chris Claremont assumed he'd get more mileage out of uh, Hardcase and the Harriers. Maybe at least a limited series, a one-shot, I don't know. Anyway, Bliss is introduced during a run-in with Jean Grey. 
Now, she had taken the form of Jean in her X-Factor costume, much like we saw here today. Of course, that was at the hands of uh, Mask, who can, who can change the way people look uh, with, a, with but a touch. Now, Jean initially fears that this is another Madeline Pryor-esque doppelganger, and Bliss takes Jean out with her nasty tongue-head thing. The following issue opens with Bliss as Jean stood over the real deal Jean while several of the Morlocks celebrate. Now, Forge and Banshee, they've spotted the Morlocks, and the uh, former has a clear shot at taking Bliss out. Banshee reminds Forge that uh, they really ought not kill. He probably He's probably scared of winding up in the hole with Sabretooth, right? Forge decides to fire off a stun grenade, but the Morlocks teleport away as it goes off. They leave Jean behind, however, so the fellas are able to rescue her. Now, later, as Jean recovers, she and Banshee are teleported away into the sewers by the Morlocks, Forge goes to track them down. However, as he does so, he is haunted by Vietnam flashbacks. He starts seeing things that aren't there, probably likely due to um, probably a mind-controlling Morlock of some sort. Now, as he fights his way through, he runs across Morlocks that are being made to resemble various X-Men. And by resemble, I mean they've got like crazy Morlockian bodies, but X-Men-looking heads. We've got a warlock, a beast, a magic, a havoc, a storm, an angel. It's just a lot of X-Men, you know. So as Forge is increasingly overwhelmed, Banshee and Jean enter the fight. Now, Forge manages to kill a foe Storm. He then notices that his friends have changed. Banshee's mouth is closed over, so it's like Mask touched his face and changed it. Uh, meaning that he can't scream, of course, unless he can do so through his nostrils. I don't know, maybe he plugs one and screams out the other. Jean, for... Reasons unknown to me um, Has what seems to be hundreds of tentacles Instead of arms And uh, it's as disturbing as it sounds Now This is all going on while Mask is attempting to pull off a coup here He's taking over the Morlocks from Callisto And Bliss, the character we're talking about here Is aligned with him for this And we see her now And she now resembles Storm Okay Callisto is running with Colossus, who is still in his post-Siege Perilous Peter Nicholas persona, and they had a little bit of a fling around this time. Uh, Callisto was a, was a fashion model at this point, if you can believe it. Now, they wind up fighting through Mask's Morlock, and Bliss as Storm uses her tongue thing to bite Callisto on the neck. Later, Forge arrives, and Bliss goes to bite him, but only reaches his cybernetic hand. He then karate chops the tongue, putting Bliss out for many Many years For reasons unknown to me And I assume many Bliss was one of the 198 mutants To retain their powers post-M-Day The you know the Scarlet Witch No More Mutants thing Next, in Uncanny X-Men number 487 By Ed Brubaker and Salvador La Roca Mask's Morlocks show up to kidnap Leech Beat up Caliban And uh, defeat Magneto Bliss is still in her, in her like Claremont Silvestri era storm look here now, the gimmick we got going here is that a Morlock called QWERTY, like the, you know, first six keys on your uh, keyboard there, they wrote some sort of a prophecy about the future of mutantdom. During a fight scene, Bliss pulls the uh, vampire tongue gimmick on Hepzibah, who was on the X-Men at this point in time. Uh, she was also romantically linked to Warpath. Um, Hes- Hepzibah, that is, uh, which... A little weird, right? I don't know. Um, now, Bliss uh, has some second thoughts after seeing Mask take out his frustrations on Proudstar here. The Morlocks manage to capture Storm, and they lock her in a casket, which, as a claustrophobe, can't be all that enjoyable. Now, Storm gets free, and Warpath punches poor Bliss, taking her out of the books for some time again. Uh, the X-Men would move to San Francisco from here and would invite the Morlocks to come west with them, because mutants are welcomed there with open arms. Bliss is taken over by the Shadow King and forced into a fight with Cyclops. How do you think that worked out for her? Uh, Bliss would decide to take the X-Men up on their offer, and she would move to Utopia, which is the other, 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 other time that the X-Men tried creating their own island nation. I mean, hell, they even called this storyline Nation X. From here, Bliss would become what I like to call X-Men wallpaper. She shows up in scenes with other mutants and Morlocks, but doesn't really do all that much. Not that she, you know, did all that much to begin with, I suppose. Now, she would uh, be part of the final arc of Generation Hope. You remember that book? Where she helped the character Zero capture and crucify Hope. And, you know, she was basically X-Men wallpaper here, too. But at least she got a line of dialogue in Generation Hope number 16. 
and uh, here she was still in her storm form. Finally, we see her in X-Men Gold number 24, where she's an inmate at the Robert Kelly Correctional Facility where Kitty, Rachel, and Storm had been tossed at the time. Here, she's just a blonde woman with a disgusting tongue, and I think we see her on like three panels. But that brings us up to date on Bliss, and I'm pretty sure uh, this is the most anybody has ever talked about Bliss before. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. <laughs> but I, I have a sneaking suspicion I'm not. So there is the quick and dirty, fake-ass comics history on the character known as Bliss. But uh, that's going to do it for us today here. If anybody would like to uh, write in, say hello, share some thoughts, please, please feel free to do so. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, Instagram at 90sXmen, or you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. For blog posts and show notes, you can hop over to Chris's on InfiniteEarths.com. You can also join us on Facebook. Our group is 90s X-Men. Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comics commentary and conversation needs, a lot of C's in there, uh, you could head over to ChrisandReggie.Podbean.com, available anywhere the internet aggregates noise. And if you like what you hear there, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, I would love for you to uh, spread the word, share the show, tell a friend, Help us grow. I would really, really appreciate it. Speaking of which, it means a lot to me that you'd hang out with me for an extended episode today. Thank you all so much for that. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Oh